Hello and welcome to another very special episode of Parsha Lab. I am Imu Shalev. And I'm Rifki Stern. What? Who's that? Rifki Stern is our executive producer. Uh, she's always here at Parsha Lab. You don't usually hear from her. But uh, this week, our foreman cannot be with us, so we are joined by the incredibly talented and ever-brilliant Rifki Stern. Rifki, welcome. Well, thanks for having me. Uh, I just figured I should really get my start with the easiest, simplest Parsha, learning about Karbanot, about Kohanim. Simple. It's remarkable that your debut in Parsha Lab happens in Sefer Vayikra. Parsha Tzav is a very special Parsha. Rifki, do you know what happens in Parsha Tzav? I think I do, yes. In Parshat Sab, we learn all about the laws of a bunch of different types of karbanot. Um, we also hear about the, the ritual induction of the Kohanim. We actually heard about that, the preparation for it, way back in Parshat Tetzave. Uh, but now the, the actual induction ceremony of the Kohanim is, is beginning, and the, the korbanot uh, involved in their induction is happening now. And the end of this parsha, they're going to stay in the Mishkan for seven days and emerge on the eighth day. That's why next week's parsha is aptly named Shemini, the eighth day, with that incredible um, ritual induction of the entire Mishkan that we talked about before, where where the fire of God comes down on the people, uh, behold God's glory, and they sing by Aronu. They sing together. It's an incredible, incredible portion of text that happens in next week's Parsha that this week's Parsha kind of leads up to. So, Rifki, what should we talk about this week in Parsha Tzav? I'm following your lead, you know. <laughs> okay. Well, here's something interesting that I noticed when I was looking at the Parsha to prepare for this great podcast. Right here in um, Leviticus chapter 6, verses 7 through 11, it's talking about the Torah Tamincha the instructions of the meal offering. This was a flower offering. And, and there's some really interesting instructions here that really pop out at us while all of us are kind of in the throes of Pesach preparation, of Passover preparation. And here's what's interesting. Out here in verse 9, we're told to eat the mincha as matzah. It needed to be baked as matzah. Matzot teachel b'makom kadosh. It should be eaten in a holy place as matzah. And we're, get, we're told in the very next verse, lo chametz. you got to make sure that it is not chametz. It is not baked with leaven. So, so, so Rifki, I thought that this was really interesting to point out that there is matzah and chametz in our parsha of all parshiot. And that, that was interesting thing number one. But, you know, uh, put the coincidence aside. What, what question pops out at you when you hear about how the Kohanim in their general service of the Mishkan need to be making sure to be eating matzah? and not having chametz. So, Imu, I think my first instinct is to ask why that would be, right? Why would it be that something that we associate with Pesach, which is not eating chametz and making sure to eat matzah, would be associated with the mincha, but with a carbon at all? Why would that be something that would be connected? Why would it come up in Parshat Sav? Okay, good. So so you went directly to, to Pesach. Explain to me why it would make sense if it were a Pesach offering. Well, on Pesach, we are given the mitzvot not to eat chametz and to eat matzah, specifically to remember what happened the night of the Exodus. On the night of the Exodus, we were in a rush, the Torah tells us, and because we were in a rush, the bread did not rise, and therefore we ate these cracker-like things, matzah, instead of eating chametz, which is regular, fluffy, doughy bread. Okay. You want to take us to a particular verse? Yeah. Let's go to Exodus chapter 12, and then let's go down to verse 39. 
Bayofu etabatseik asher hotziu mimitzrayim ugot matzot kilo chametz. And they baked this unleavened bread of the dough that they took out of Egypt, for it was matzot kilo chametz. It was not chametz. Kigorshu mimitzrayim because they were they were thrust, they were pushed out of Egypt, and they could not tarry. And they hadn't prepared for themselves anything in advance, any provisions. So this verse sort of explicitly sets up a contrast between matzah and chametz, almost like they're opposites, that they couldn't eat chametz, they couldn't eat bread, so instead they ate matzah, they ate these crackers, this unleavened bread. Great. So there are a couple questions, right? So if the reason why we desist from chametz and the reason why we eat matzah is because we left Egypt really, really quickly and the dough didn't have time to rise. And because of the miraculous nature of that haste, we really appreciate God. And so we choose to celebrate that haste through which we were saved by eating matzah and getting rid of of lazy bread, of, of slow bread, of chametz. Makes sense. I have some explanation as to why I, I keep uh, Pesach and Matzah. But it doesn't really make sense in Tzav. It doesn't really make sense when we're discussing the laws of this Mincha sacrifice, why the Kohanim would have to eat Matzah, right? Why would we be celebrating leaving Egypt really quickly, right? That's that's the basic question. Right. And actually, this is interesting because my suspicion is that Matzah and Chametz have to be bigger than just the Exodus, than just the Yitzhak Mitzrayim. It's not just that we eat matzah and desist from chametz to remember you'd see at Mitzrayim, it has to be that these two things, matzah and chametz, sort of symbolize something bigger. And I think that that's going to get to our fundamental answer of why we do not eat them as part of the mincha offering. Yeah. And let's make the question a bit stronger as we are wont to do. So I want to take you to Exodus 23, verse 18. Here in Exodus 23, we're just getting a bunch of general laws. This is out in, in Parshat Mishpatim. There's plenty of plenty of laws here. And one of the laws here is Lotizbach al Chametz Damzivri. Make sure that when you sacrifice any sacrifices, please, I don't want any Chametz in my Mishkan. Right? So there's a rule. This isn't just about the Mincha. This is just rules in general for the Mishkan that God doesn't want Chametz in the Mishkan. Right? And so the question we can ask is it's just an extension of our other question, which is it's not just the Mincha. It seems as if God is celebrating Pesach year round in the Mishkan. He does not want any chametz in the Mishkan. The question is why? What I want to do is push at the myth a little bit, is that the reason why we, we bake matzah uh, and the reason why we desist from chametz, its opposite, is to remember that night that we left really, really quickly. And I want to ask you a question, Rifki. You talked a couple of times about the, the coupling of matzah and the opposite command of not eating chametz. Let me ask you a question. If God had said, I took you out of Egypt really quickly, so I want you to eat matzah, as a commemoration, and he never gave the commandment that said, and I also want you to desist from all chametz. Would you have had a problem with that? Would you Would you have had any questions? No, I don't think it would have made a difference, right? It, it kind of actually intuitively makes more sense that way, right? You You have your normal life, you have the regular things that you do, but now you add this special commandment for Pesach that you're remembering the Exodus by also eating matzah, right? The way on any other holiday, you commemorate it by adding something in. You don't take away, but instead you add something in, right? You don't destroy your house on sukkahs, but you sit in a sukkah. So you would add in the matzah without taking away the chametz from your regular life. Exactly. If the point of matzah is a symbol to remember that we left quickly, why is there an opposite? It's almost like it's offensive to the matzah if you were to eat chametz because it was not fast. But right, like why does a symbol have an opposite? 
Um, let me make it make it a little bit more clear or, or sharper. The question: we, There are other symbolic foods we eat on Pesach, right? Like maror. Right. I was exactly. I was having the exact same thought. I was thinking about in the four questions. One of the things we say is we ask about vegetables and about maror, right? And in the four questions, it's very clear. We don't take away other vegetables. We eat other vegetables as normal, but we add in one thing. What do we add? We add maror. Right. We don't get rid of sweet cucumbers. We don't get rid of cilantro, although some of us may wish that we get rid of cilantro on Pesach. We we eat maror and there's no offensive vegetable to us. There's no vegetable that we have to really, really get rid of. By the way, the implications of this are huge, right? Entire Pesach program industries exist because of how seriously we take this law to get rid of chametz. Um, and it doesn't feel like the answer of we left Egypt really quickly, is compelling enough to explain why we don't eat chametz. Let's make this uh, question even stronger. I want to take you just a few verses above in Exodus 12, 8. For some context, what's happening here is, is this is before Israel flees Egypt. They're still in Egypt, um, and they're getting the commands of the Korban Pesach that they're going to do before the, the, the final plague. They're told, make sure to eat this, this sacrifice, the meat of the sacrifice this night. Tzli uh, roasted. Do me a favor, eat this with matzah. I don't understand. Matzah only becomes significant after they flee Egypt and the dough doesn't have time to rise. So then why is God telling them to eat the Korban Pesach with matzah? You hear the question? Yeah, absolutely. The reason we're eating matzah is to commemorate the night we left Egypt well, the carbon Pesach happened before we left Egypt. So why is matzah already a thing if it wasn't commemorating the haste with which we had to leave Egypt? Good question, Emu. Okay. And before we get to the answer, I'll just say personally for me, this is a question that has plagued me many at Pesach because it always felt kind of suspicious to me. The, the number one way in which we celebrate Pesach, or maybe number two, if you count the Haggadah and the Seder night, which is a really, really beautiful uh, mitzvah, is about chametz. It feels like if for someone who wants to, to dial into this, the meaningful or spiritual significance of the mitzvot and why we do what we do, Pesach just feels hard. It feels difficult to not really understand this whole chametz business. It just doesn't feel compelling enough to be the opposite of a ritual about how we left Egypt really quickly. And there are a lot of answers. There's Maharalian answers and Kabbalistic answers about you know the, the spiritual destructiveness of things that take a lot of time. So while, while I uh, value alacrity and zeal as much as the next guy, I think that that answer is actually, it's, it's a deeper answer of something that's a little more shot-based, uh, something that is, is more, maybe more readily apparent in the text, uh, and something that is a more common theme throughout the Chumash. So Rifki, in order to get at an answer, I want to take you back to Exodus 23, to Parshat Mishpatim where we hear about the very first time that there's no chametz allowed and not in a Pesach context, right? This is the first time where we're told that you can't have chametz in the, in the Migdash. And I want to read two verses with you and look for context clues. Let's see if we can get some sort of context that will help us understand why does God have a problem with chametz? If he's not keeping Pesach in the Mishkan all year round, what other reason could he have for prohibiting chametz? Let's read these psukim and see if the context will help us understand. So, lo tizbach al chametz dam zivchi, make sure not to bring chametz along with the blood of my offerings. Lo yalin chelev chagi ad boker, make sure not to leave over 
the fats of the Chag offering until the morning. It's got to be fully consumed. Reshit bikurei admatcha tavi beit Hashem elokecha. You must bring the first fruits to the house of God. The first fruits that you grow should be brought to me, Bikurim. Lo tevashel gdi bachalevi mo. By the way, please make sure not to cook a kid in its mother's milk. That is a rather odd assortment of mitzvot in just two verses. It is. So what, what, what do these things have in common, if anything? What, what pops out at you? How would you make sense of this random collection of laws? No chametz in the mikdash. Make sure not to leave uh, you know, the fat from the offering over until the morning. Bring bikurim and don't eat milk and meat together. So I definitely don't have an instinct for how the four connect. Uh, my first thought is about Bikurim, though. Bikurim is, I think, a really interesting mitzvah and one that Rabbi Foreman has done a lot of work about, uh, specifically speaking about the value of Bikurim. Bikurim is meant to sort of be a reminder for us, right? It is very easy for me as a farmer. I've done a lot of work. I've I've raised these crops. I've taken care of them. I've grown this food and I'm so proud of myself to sort of look around and say like, yeah, I did this. Congratulations, me, and kind of give myself a pat on the back. Bikurim is meant to sort of be a reminder to me, that farmer, saying, not so fast. Yes, you did this. You should be proud of yourself. But don't forget, God is the one who gave you these tools. God is the one who enabled this for you. And even while you're excited about these fruit, recognize God and bring him those choicest first fruits. So, so let's focus on on that verse, on verse nineteen, which is Bikurim and Lotevashel Godiba Chalevimo. Don't cook a kid in its mother's milk. And I think what you what you said about Bikurim is a really great place to start. It's almost like there is a spiritual danger of being a farmer. When you're a farmer, there's amazing creativity that you can do. You can literally cultivate new life. These amazing vegetables or fruits, and there's a spiritual danger to that great creativity. That spiritual danger is that you might forget that there is a creator above you. And what's the way in which the Torah tells us to bridge that spiritual danger and channel that creativity that could otherwise be harmful into something incredible and brings you closer to God? Well, the beautiful ritual of Bikurim. You simply take the first fruits that you've grown and labored over and you bring it to the Mishkan, you testify before God that you understand that this comes from him. It's funny, there's actually a lot of overlap here with Pesach, because one of the parts of Magi that we say at the Seder as part of our Haggadah is the speech that the farmer gives when he brings Bikurim, right? The farmer gives this speech that starts with Arami Oved Avi and goes all the way down, giving the chain of sort of history, acknowledging that he remembers that he is not the person who did this on his own, that there's a long line of people and God that brought him to this moment where he's even able to bring these Bikurim. And we talk about that on Pesach at the yep, Haggadah. Yeah, that's definitely true. And there are many, there are many, uh, Pesach connections between Bikurim, that one which you discussed of Arami Ovedavi, the, the actual text that you're supposed to say uh, according to the Torah in Dvarim when you give Bikurim, which is by the way the text that we read at the Seder, the Haggadah the core text that we read in the Haggadah comes from that declaration of Bikurim describing how we left Egypt uh, because apparently we're supposed to recognize that we left Egypt whenever we give Bikurim, but also the word Bechor, right? Bikurim right. is, is Bechor, right? It's the actual Bechor Pesach is the Bechor holiday. You can check out some of our other videos on Aleph Beta and on YouTube, actually, that discuss this Bechor theme. The very first time we're told 
to bring the first of our animals is in the context of the 10th plague and the Korban Pesach. So Emu, I think actually building on that, I'm now seeing a little bit of maybe how it connects to the next mitzvah in that verse, right? Which was, do not cook a kid in its mother's milk. We talked about Bikurim as a way of recognizing the creator of us bringing these fruits to recognize that we are not the source of everything that we've created. And in the same way, I think there are overlapping connections to do not cook a kid in its mother's milk. When we abstain from mixing together a child and its mother, especially with the milk, which is actually what sustains and nourishes that kid, we too recognize sort of this respect for creators, this recognition of creators. And I think that the connection there, I don't exactly know how to articulate it, but I think that there there's a lot of overlap in this shared theme. So this is also, um, this was a, a video where Foreman did for Re'e, on uh, the meaning of why why we might uh, be prohibited from cooking milk and meat together. And there Rabbi Foreman argued that this verse is, is actually it's hyperbole. The prohibition of not cooking a kid in its mother's milk is obvious, right? That's it's an awful thing to do. It just feels so obviously awful to us to say like, oh, here is this baby. It would taste delicious in its mother's milk, right? That's awful. It's horrible. This is a, a mother and a child. How would you? How could you do that? Rabbi Foreman argues that the rabbis read this verse and understand it as hyperbole, as a general blanket prohibition of cooking milk and meat together in general. It's basically saying milk is something a parent gives to its child to nourish it. And for you to um, be so insensitive to where your food comes from, to, to treat milk as merely as an ingredient, so much so that you would mix it with an animal itself with, and, and cook it, together and 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 this this animal that you're consuming and the milk that you're consuming and just say yeah there's no difference they're both ingredients to me and to not recognize the relationship between milk and uh and the animals it provides for is immoral and the torah prohibits that so let's actually now now that you we've we've clarified maybe uh, the meaning behind those two different mitzvot can you tell us what would you see rifki as the connection between bikurim and the prohibition of milk and meat. So I think that to a certain extent, what they're really both trying to say is recognizing and respecting that relationship between creator and created, or if we, we want to use that language, right? It's really recognizing source. It's recognizing where I came from, where my accomplishments came from, and it's recognizing where this animal came from. This animal came from its parents and respecting that source. Excellent. So both of these these ideas are about recognition of source and about the ills you could, that could happen to you uh, spiritually if you as a farmer or you as a consumer of meat uh, or dairy products can fall prey to if you don't recognize the creator that lives above us. You can be an over-consumer. You can eat your fruits and ignore God, or you can corrupt this relationship between parent and child among animals and, and treat them as ingredients. And so these laws are there to remind us of who we are in the order of things, understand that we are little creators and that there's a big creator above us. Make sense? Yeah, not only does it make sense, it um, gives me a framework with which to continue to approach these, right? Because now I'm looking at Lotizbach al Khamet Dam Zivchi, right? Do not offer together with um, my sacrifice, actually the language is the blood of my sacrifice, with the chametz, with this leavened bread. And that makes me think that that's also about recognizing this relationship between creator and created with recognizing source, right? Because the visceral sort of strong language of sacrifice as being tied to blood feels also very much about this like natural 
created language, and God is saying, don't mix that with chametz. I'm not exactly sure what that is, right? But chametz seems to be some sort of more elevated or more processed food, right? There's something there. I'm not sure. I think you're onto something. I've actually, so I knew where I was going when I started here, but I, I did not, never thought about reading that verse and reading the word blood. But I think, I think you're probably right. What jumps out at me, and I think what you're starting to say is what we offer on the Mizbeach isn't the best chefs come together and they sous vide something incredible for God, you know, together with some garlic and, and some arugula and paella, right? What we do is we bring the animal in its most raw form. It, right? The blood is is the essence of an animal. The Torah actually says, Adam nefesh. The blood is the, is the soul. The blood is the essence of, of a being, right? And the Torah is sort of saying, don't mix that with chametz. I think there's a little bit of historical context here that's important in order to understand this. And and I think, you know, let, let's pretend chametz is is not referring to leavening specifically, but to to actual leavened bread, right, which is baked. Um, and, and, and I'll get to the context in a second. But just if, if it's referring to bread that is baked um, as compared to blood, then then those two things couldn't be more opposite. Yeah, I mean, blood feels like such visceral, intense language, right? It's what we, we associate blood with life. We associate blood with, with our own bodies, as opposed to something like bread, which feels much more removed, right? Now, don't you take the weed and then you, you crush it and you kill it. And it's much more complex. Yeah. So, so just for those of you who are not bread makers, bread, what we, when we eat bread or sourdough specifically, it, it's something that is, is highly processed. It's, Really, at its core form, if you if you were bringing this on the, on the mizbeach in its blood-like form, what you'd be bringing is grass. Wheat. Wheat is basically a grass, and we take that and we kill that wheat. First, we yeah, right, we we dry it, we cut it, we leave it out in the fields to dry it again. Then we crush it, and then we give it water as if to give it new life, and then we bake it, kill it again with more heat. That that's how humans baked bread for thousands of years. But there was a culture that invented a new way to further process the bread. To take the processed flour uh, and add with water, they would do something interesting to make it rise. They would expose it to yeast, and they would let it sit. And the people who invented that, the, the culture that invented that, and there's, there's some historical debate, but, but many think it is. Go ahead, Rifki. Egypt. I remember actually my 11th grade Chumash teacher telling us that, and it really blew my mind. Right. The Egyptians invented chametz. I believe what they did is they first invented beer, which is liquid bread, through the fermentation process, and they, they were able to bake bread and sourdough, which means that most people, when they baked, they were baking matzah. And the Egyptians learned this technique, and it was a very rich technique. It was something that made you feel, um, first of all, it made the bread taste differently. It, it made the bread literally rise. It was almost like you were breathing life into the bread. And they said the Egyptian priests were the ones who held the secrets for how to do this and eventually spread among the masses as well. But in that context, what chametz represents is, again, that this could possibly trigger mankind's spiritual danger and mankind's spiritual challenge. Here we are in an age of iPhones, and it's kind of hard to relate to that. But back in, in the times of the Torah, it seems like this was a major technological innovation that was really part of making Egypt not only the most powerful nation in the world, but also the most godlike. Right? If you look back at Egypt and, and who Egypt was in Beratius, Egypt were the bread makers, and they were the breadbasket of the ancient world. And it's interesting also, 
what were were the Israelites doing as slaves for the Egyptians? Yeah, very cool. They were building storehouses for the grain, which was going to lead to bread. Exactly. They weren't building any pyramids. Pyramids were around. They were building storehouses for grain. And so I think that, you know, in the context of these other uh, mitzvot in, in verses 18 and 19 here in, in Exodus 23, we see possibly a, a major reason for the spiritual ills of chametz, of over-processing our food, and the dangers of that. And I think, though, God doesn't have a problem with us eating chametz all year round, in the same way that God doesn't have a problem with us being farmers all year round. But there is a recognition process that we need to go through, and almost like a cleanse that we need to go through once a year on Pesach, where we get rid of all the chametz, where we strip down bread in its most basic form without us breathing new life into it, and keep it as close as it possibly can to its to its grass-like form. And we use it to recognize God during that time period. But it would also mean that God's not keeping Pesach all year round in the Mishkan. In the Mishkan specifically, which is God's home, that's not really appropriate for you to bring man's best over creations. The Mishkan is a place for us to recognize God, the raw materials, the basics, right? Most of the grain offerings in Mishkan was simply flour, uh, flour mixed together with oil. And in the Mishkan here, the Mincha is baked into matzah. Can't be anything, anything more than that. That would be inappropriate. It's interesting also because we think of the Mishkan as the physical place in which we humans can have that direct relationship with God. And then the equivalent is also the holidays, right? Including obviously Pesach as being the place in time where we can have this intimate relationship with God. So this idea of the Mishkan and its relationship with creation and overcreation and holidays and its relationship with creation and overcreation and the relationship that we have with God in both of these, I don't know. I think there, there's also something mm. there also that makes yeah. me think. There's so much more to do. Like there, there are some questions we left a little bit unanswered, right? There's why we were given the commands of matzah before we had to leave. Um, right. There's also the, the missing mitzvah, right? Why do we not leave the fat over all night until the morning? Yes. However, I think we have enough in the theory for you guys to to do some of the homework on your own. And I actually think one of the coolest implications is it, it gives you a new understanding of uh, the process of Omer, where you're literally waving the grass itself. You're waving the, uh, the barley around. And the um, process we take over Sfirata Omer of the return to the two loaves of chametz. This is actually the Torah actually says this is this is a time where you bring these shtehalechem. You specifically had to bake the bread as chametz, and you bring them on Shavuot as part of the the shtehalechem offering. So there is this journey that we take from from matzah and no chametz all the way to to these loaves of bread of chametz that that you would take to the the mikdash. They weren't offered, but you were allowed to take them right outside the mikdash and brought before God. So there's a lot of really cool stuff to explore. I hope you enjoyed. I hope this was fun for everybody. I hope it makes everybody's Vayikra and Tzav more meaningful. And uh, I hope that uh, it helps uh, enliven your Pesach prep and your Seder table discussions. Please make sure to share this podcast with friends. It actually really, really helps us. So if you're driving, pull over and send this to someone that you think will enjoy it. And while you're pulled over, rate us five stars in the iTunes store. Also makes a huge difference. And by the way, there's so much great Pesach material that we have on the site. So please, if you're missing our by Foreman, go to alephbeta.org and check out the incredible, incredible new Pesach course that by Foreman has just put out and the many wonderful Pesach courses that we have up. I know you will not regret it.